0: seemed like, um, I was going to say, it seemed like a very quiet Amarawati. Then suddenly I remembered, I remembered that we spent the last two days listening to the tree being felled and cut. It was very noisy. And also, I think it was probably quite noisy in people's heart because um, so many people, um, so many you know, felt naturally very sad to see those beautiful trees that had been living with us for over thirty years, with um, being kind of uh, cut down. Although they had to, unfortunately, because of new buildings that are going to be um, come into being next year. So, it hasn't been so quiet. But many people must be wondering, well, everybody's gone at the Marawati, even though there's still very enough people. But um, there's a lot of, lot of things going on after the Vasa, about two weeks, two, two weeks after the Vasa, I think. And so, <coughs> Vasa is fairly, it's also <laughs> active and busy, but it's stable in the sense people can't really go, um, away from the monastery for more than six nights at a time. We take a vow of stability during the three months called Vasa, the rains retreat. Vasa means rains. And it's a time during which the Buddha said that uh, monks and nuns would not um, travel on land because of uh, the the danger of damaging the crops of the farmers so they would stay in one place for three months from the full moon of July to the full moon of October. So now we've finished that period and of course there's a lot more movement with the four katinas we have in this country with our four monasteries and then also with people visiting relatives and families and uh, moving around more freely So that's two weeks after all of us in the sangha have grown into an, an new, another year. We count our age in the sangha by the, amount, the number of vasa, or rains retreat. It's not it's called rains rather than rains retreat, but retreat has a, a resonance which is different from the... The time we spend here for three months—it's not just a retreat. It's also very engaged with different activities, different uh, different things going on at Omerawati. Um So we've gone up one more year, and today we had we celebrated our uh, Ajamudi um birthday. I don't think she wants me to see the age, maybe, I don't, I don't think she minds, but <laughs> she's getting one more year in this life. One more Vasa, and one more year since she was born. And so, we're very happy to celebrate such a lovely um, thing, because Jambodipala, as many of you know, and has already shared that with many people, has been quite ill during this summer and we're very happy that she's recovered very well from her illness and so it's very wonderful thing that she can continue her life well, having recovered. So when I thought about talking uh, about tonight um, I have to say, I got disappointed, because even though I had a kind of topic, or an idea, some kind of idea, it didn't seem to be going very far. (laughs) I did some research, I'm always interested in researching in words, in concept ideas, and, um, you know, trying to remember my Buddhist teaching, learning over the last many years. And, I don't know. Sometimes life is like is like that. Sometimes you, you feel you can you can't control life in many ways. I mean, you can control it. It's not that you can't control, but somehow when you work from a mind that has lost control for so many years, you just can't control that much. It can control simply because you've one practices dhamma. So you could see the controlling part if one can call it this way, is more that you are uh, giving yourself in a way, you have a a knowledge that your mind is not just uh, um, limited by the personality that you live with all the time. So um, you trust, there's a sense of trust, a sense of uh, confidence in call it the heart, I call it life, really. Um, because the mind, many people wonder, you know, what is a mind, what is a heart, what is it, you know? And um, at some level, we could have a very simple definition. Like, for me, but somehow it became very clear. <laughs> Don't go very far, your heart, your mind, is the life you are experiencing moment by moment. That's your heart. Life. So, if you want to know what your world is, or your mind, or your, then just check out what is your life now. What is? Uh, and we don't know. You know, we think it's all packed up in this body, but it's not packed up in this body and brain. You know. So maybe we have a big mind without knowing it. Maybe we have a big world without knowing it. But certainly. When you practice, you begin to see that your connection with the world is much wider, it's much more kind of, you feel you're connected with a much bigger kind of universe somehow, than just me and my problem and my difficulties and this and that. Your mind expands, and so you feel this um, relationship with life and with the world, which is much more broad and um, open. Sometimes I get tired of speaking about practice. Tired. What I mean, I've been teaching for so many years. Sometimes I feel, how much is there to say, really? How much is there to tell people? How much is there to share? Because in a way, the more we talk about it, sometimes I get into this kind of funny feeling of everything we learn very often is not through being taught or talked, talked to or listening to others, the more what we learn is what the life offers to us to us every day every moment every you know our connection with life our the way we relate to it this is our this is what we learn this is our teaching of course the mind that is um, walks the path you know the path of buddhism is called the training the training of the heart mind But really the training is actually more an untraining of the mind. You stop telling the mind what to do all the time. You stop um, having all kind of ideas about what you should do and not do. It's more like unconditioning the mind, abandoning this tendency to always want to have things just the way I think they should be. Very strong in the art, and certainly in my mind, I remember having to have to bear for many years with all kind of rigid structure in my mind, which I knew was very limiting, and yet you still have to bear with them to see them go. It's not just... um, You know, having an idea that they should not be there because it's the book says it's this, this, and this, and that is no good. Blah blah blah. It's no good. Blah blah blah. You have to. um, We, you know, Buddhist past requires from us a kind of different activity. It's the activity of undoing. The activity of not do, of not being active, of not doing anything, but to 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 come to that place of not doing, you don't have to do anything, except just begin to study the mind, rather than control the mind. You begin to study, you begin to really get um, a sense for what it means to develop knowledge of the heart, mind, life, you know, rather than to um, keep putting your mind into the kind of little kind of uh, chapters and lists and um, paragraphs and, um, you know, a kind of rigid model, rigid mind, rigid approach to life. So I I personally don't go through the period where I have been going through this period, but I don't go now so much in period where you go really down or you go up. You go really miserable and you go inspired and uplifted and then you go depressed and da-da-da and so on, you know, where you lose faith, you lose confidence, you lose the sense that what you're doing is it worth it? You start questioning, you start doubting, and so on. This is not much of my uh, world these days. And I don't, but I don't want to forget when this happened to others, because I know how difficult it is. And um, maybe the, the concept that came to mind when I was thinking about her talk was like commitment and a confidence, I mean, more like faith. You know, the faith. and commitment, and I was looking at the definition of commitment in English, it's about the same as in French, but um, it's interesting, in the Pali dictionary I couldn't find any word for commitment. I did find some words for commitment, I found two in fact, sorry, but none of them corresponded <laughs> to the, what we ent- what we would uh, interpret as, or um, hear as the commitment, the word English or in French. Uh, that correspond to those words, so I just abandoned them. But this, the closest to a commitment will be an aditana, will be like just a determination to stick with something, you know, determination to stay with what you have decided to do. And uh, as we um, spend, you know, days after days, uh, walking the... the you know, walking within oneself uh, a path that is uh, lit by uh, the the quality of mindfulness, that is uh, lit by the quality of awareness, of remembering, of um, bringing to heart um, what we love most, you know, most of us wouldn't be here if we didn't like this Search in a way—it's like a search, even though we can think of your search as a desire, of something. But it's—it's it's very different from desire. It's more like—I hmm. mean, in the many tradition you have this idea of longing for something. The Sufi tradition, I know, this kind of longing for something nobody knows what it is, maybe. But for, I think it's the nature of the, of the human heart, to be searching for something that it may not encapsulate in words or concept. but there is something that is missing in us. We feel something is missing. And it's not like, I don't think anything is really missing, but it's just a, a normal working, the way the, the mind work works. It's f- somehow, this. it's not just discontent in the sense of uh, being happy about something. It's more like this energy of life. You could say, it's a, maybe it's like a bawa, a bawa tanha. Um, we don't have to have tanha. We can have bhaoha experience without tanha. Okay, it's like life energy is a a becoming process. It's not something that stops, is it? I mean, till the end of our life, bodies continues, mind continues. The machine of body and mind does get a bit um, worn and uh, start packing up after a little while. But that kind of energy of becoming Without a desire to get something or to um, or to attach to the, this life energy that courses us constantly, so sometimes we don 't quite know what to do with this because it's just life a natural in its natural state, and we try to kind of um, maybe uh, find a way of you know, cutting its life energy, trying to kind of um, stop that energy of life. So it's it's uh, it's not I wouldn't say it's not something to worry about. It's just something to notice. It's just uh, it's just there. It's something like something is missing. Maybe nothing is missing, but that's what he feels, something is missing. Or something is maybe not quite right right now. Or something is should improve. That's a good one, because of course we should improve, quote-unquote. That's an easy one to understand for a, our habitual minds. I must improve, I must get a better person, a better Buddhist, a better man, a better woman. I must learn more, I must you know i must really get to know more about things about buddhism and so on so i think it's this power bawa its energy of becoming it's all around <laughs> we're swimming in it you know you want to sit you want to sit more, and then you get fed up. That's the opposite. You've got bhava and vibhava. You know, so that's it's, you know Swimming in those, those kind of polarities of the mind. It's so close to us, we hardly notice it. We don't actually see that we are caught in this dynamic of, uh, you know, feeling the becoming and not quite, not quite knowing how to interpret it, this, this experience. We tend to interpret it maybe in a kind of judgmental way. There's something wrong with me. The Buddha said, Bhava and Vibhava is no good. It's a cause of suffering. I have to kill it. I have to stop it because the Buddha says, dot, dot, so I didn't think I'll be talking about that, but there it goes, because it's actually very important. I realize it's a very important topic. That I never really brought and talked about this energy of becoming without tanha, or the energy of non-becoming without tanha, There's bawa tanha, tanha, but there is a Most of you know, the whole path is about not holding to things, learning how to not, and to trust that things will come back if they need to come back. Sometimes we're frightened to let things go, because we think that we're in control. We think if they go, they never come back. So, just to go back to this um, power, you know, you can't really stop anything. Especially life force, can't stop it. You think after many, many years you'll stop being hungry in the afternoon, won't you? You're hoping one day, as you become more and more and more and more and more good at living the day, days and days and years without eating in the afternoon, you know, the interpretation is, at some point, I will feel just peaceful and kind. I'll see a big piece of chocolate and cheese and my... You think like that, it's not conscious. My brain will be, know exactly what to do. Well, hunger is still around. <laughs> the, the power of hunger is still going on. The power of anger for anything, in fact. It could be food, it could be sex, it could be, um, you know, it could be books, it could be fun, it could be so many things that we want to become. Just want to have fun. And sometimes this life can appear as not being fun, but if you remember that the past is inwardly, inwardly, we don't have to be so expressive externally, we're not here all dancing together and having rock music in the background, you know, we're not here trying to exteriorize our fun, but we're certainly, I think the pa- past has an element of fun, which is something you discovered after a while, because it really increases your sense of humour. Why does it increase your sense of humour? Because you begin to be at peace with something in you that lives with you that is totally you train. You have tried for many, many years to make this thing in you really well, as good as you could, as beautiful as you could, something very special, not just ordinary me, a special something. And at some point you just give up, you know. You just realize there's no point to carry on propping up, putting makeup, putting this, you know, having all kind of wonderful ideas and ideals about this and that and the other. At some point you just kind of had enough of that, you know. And so what you had enough is the attachment to becoming constantly that life force. Yeah. So this is a dangerous path, you can see, because when you stop attaching to the life force, you think you're going to die, don't you? We stop becoming, I mean, I'm going to be dead. Well, lo and behold, you won't be dead, you will carry on until your last breath. So what do you do? You still eat until your last breath very often, until you die. You see, hunger might still be there. Even on the day you die, you still want to eat a meal maybe. So, it's really important to live with a mind and body that we understand well enough to know that we don't need to kill it or we don't need to suppress it, or we don't need to make it an ideal, some kind of vision we have about how we would be in ten years time, how we would speak as a good Buddhist. By then you think, oh, my ego will have died, I'm sure. I will be a good one, something I can be proud of, that other people will be impressed by. I will finally have an ego that can be really intelligent and impressive with the Dharma. Together with the Dharma, that should be a really good job. would be fantastic, really fantastic. Even though we don't get paid for teaching, but I'm sure people will come by flocking to listen to me because I've got such a wonderful dharmic ego now. It's never happened to me, (laughs) fortunately. You don't mind at some point whether your ego is good or whether the ego is, you know, you know who, you, who you think you are is actually um, worthy or not, or, it doesn't matter anymore. What matters is this beautiful commitment, if I want to use that word that came to my mind when I was thinking about the, the talk, this wonderful commitment to just trusting that life, is your guide, life is your teacher, life is your mentor, life is your brain. You speak from that connection with your life. And I was really glad to come to a tradition that do not rely on memory. You know, when you have to give a lecture, you have to rely on memory at least have all your list of paper in front of you, which is good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a great way to give a talk. But in a way, when you don't rely on memory, I have noticed very often, you stumble on, you know, across things that, you say, how did that come to my mind? You know, how did that, how did I think so differently this time about something I've, Listened in my mind for many years, and suddenly, even as you speak, as you teach, sometimes you have insight to yourself. You teach yourself, in other words, as you're speaking. You think I know these things, maybe, and you think I have memorized them from books, you know, for the last two weeks. But actually, very often when I speak, sometimes I say something I've never said. I say, that's interesting. I never thought that angle of, of that situation. So, That's because you come not from memory, but from in a way emptiness. I mean my mind is not holding on to anything. And so sometimes that's what it's that this is a practice, you know, when we talk about sitting, listening to a talk in a meditation state, a meditative state, and you also give a talk in a kind of meditative state in the same way. It's one style, it doesn't have to be the, the one that's best. It's such one style, which I really love in a way, because when I listen to people coming from that place, which is a emptiness of the heart, something very special comes out of that place. And maybe that which is very special is that commitment to a, a, a part of oneself which is beyond the memory sense, beyond the uh, the fear sense, beyond so many things. You can have fear giving the talk, but you can actually give a talk and see the fear, and not be caught in it. So this is what the practice is about. We can see life as it is, we can see bhava, we can see vibhava, and not, you know, and, and not be caught in it. You don't have to hang on to bhava or bhivava. Then that, that stops the mind from carrying on this idea that those things are negative, or those things are not part of your life as a Buddhist monk, or as a Buddhist nun, or as a lay practitioner. And then everybody is trying to be on the middle way, as an idea, if I'm on bawa not right, vivawa not right, there must be something right, must be the middle way. And then, of course, every time the bawa and Bibawa and you start coming up, you have this idea I'm not on the middle way, I've just been eating three bars of chocolate, definitely gone out of balance. Not seeing the big bars, just the smallest bars. Or oh, I've been beating myself up to stop eating chocolate. That's the ribawa style. So we get blinded by Bavara and then we get blinded by Vibhavara. not going to do this for an, a week. And next day forget all about it and start eating again. So, Notice how the mind picks up life seen through the Buddhist teaching. That's why sometimes I get really tired with all these concepts and ideas and Buddhist teaching all together. Not the Buddha's words particularly, but hearing other people talking to me about the Buddha's words. And sometimes I have to talk, I have to. I have to tell people things about, with the Buddhist teaching, and I get tired myself of talking about it, because I think they get tired as well. Because at some level, the Buddhist teaching is very simple. And I tend to think, of course, which is a mistake on my part, that everybody understand it. And then when they ask questions, I realize not, they don't always understand it. But really, uh, To understand the Buddhist teaching, it doesn't take that much. One of the things I would say to understand the Buddhist teaching, you have to really, really empty the bin of of your knowledge. You know, I'm thinking of a computer, my bin on my computer, is I click on it and just empty it. So you can sort of have a clear screen to understand. Because we have so many baggage that we carry around. Especially if you've been born in a Buddhist country, it's even worse. I'm not talking about anybody here, but sometimes you have even more baggage. And the baggage is not a... Buddhist baggage is not a bad one. This is a lot of baggage, They're much worse than the Buddhist baggage. But on the path of um, knowledge and the path of, um, you know, the path is full stop. Um, You try to really um, follow the path, and the path itself, to follow it correctly, basically, it's not like you have to let go of everything, but you have to learn how to let go of things, which is different. You know, people say, let go, let go, let go. But you don't have to let go of everything, but learn how to let go of the thing that blocks the view in your mind. The thing that stops the wisdom from manifesting, the thing that keeps on keeps the suffering arising again and again. So to do that, you really—it's a skill. It's simply a skill of letting go of simple things like I eat too much. I have to learn how to maybe eat less. I can experiment, maybe just like it takes you straight away to the a path of experimentation. That's what I love most about the Buddhist teaching, is this kind of, you understand this teaching when you are experimenting yourself with life. You don't have to have life written in a book and have to memorize it. You know, you observe your mind and you see clearly, when I think like this for too long, I start crying. When I think like this for too long, I start beating myself up with anger and frustration. When I keep the feeling of depression for too long, then I feel really miserable. So it's like you begin to sort of not be above all this, but you begin to have enough distance with your life so that you can actually observe what it does. That's an amazing... Gift from the Buddhist teaching. You can observe your life and what it does to you and what it does to others also, because others and you is not so far from each other. So let's say, um, you know, when the mind starts thinking certain thoughts, nothing comes to mind. Yeah, I mean remembering something, maybe a grudge I had about somebody or You know, I train, at some point you train yourself to not linger with a grudge, because why? You have to train yourself to not linger with a grudge. You also have to know how to not repress things. Most people will repress things. You have to learn to be with a grudge in a very peaceful way. Once you know peacefully what the grudging mind is about, then you... Have opened a door to the skill of letting go. But if you keep on mistreating your mind, thinking that, thinking what you should do, how you should do it, maybe you're not doing the right thing. Be careful. A lot of the letting go practice has to do with truly losing control. And by losing control, you lose control of fear. Suddenly, your fear disappears for a second, and you, the thing you feared is gone. And often, I, you know, many of us, as you practice, you encounter a kind of the, 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 the traditional sort of um, thing that many people live through, the kind of the obsessive mind you know when it's when it's stuck in a choiceless awareness or when the options of our life have decreased to a great degree the mind has a you know easily a tendency to obsess about what the thing you have given up it's obsessed about things. you know i've had my sort of medicine we have in the afternoon when you become more in a, in a kind of that kind of situation suddenly chocolate cheese or a stupid thing like this you know become really important start thinking about it the day before i've given up on that long time ago fortunately but it took me a while to get to that point you know where you don't linger into that kind of but for most people you linger and you may, maybe you make yourself really bad to think about the roquefort that's in the fridge that will be served for the next Wampara. Do you understand? So, I just want to make you feel really friendly with yourself, you know, just don't worry about this, this is just the way the mind is. There's nothing wrong with it, it's just, you know, what happened? Now, when I go back to France and the fridge is full of roquefort in my family's fridge, You know, I wouldn't even want it. I prefer having maybe no cheese on the day, (laughs) because there's so much cheese, that you don't think about it. It's because we think about it, we want something. So, I sometimes I feel a bit sad, because I don't talk about all the things that people experience more. You know, after 40 years, you would think that you have cleared the past a little bit. And then I realized that uh, I'm living also with people who are not really, uh, you know, I don't have the same knowledge I have, the peace I would say I have around these things. The peace of not making a problem, you know, something as skillful and skillful, you want to certainly. Uh, have some kind of say in it where you want to go with your mind what you want to do with it and how you want to approach the situation internally or externally but sometimes we you know when we don't have a a perspective when we are so intensely kind of involved with something something as stupid as a piece of chocolate you can think gosh you know I used to be High minded before I became a nun, or even as I before I entered the monastery, even as a layperson, you see, I used to think of elevated things, you know, like things that sort of nourishes the heart at the highest level. And you think about the beauty of life, the beauty of things, all the ideals we have about poetry and so on, you know, and then you're suddenly obsessed about you know, somebody dragging their feet in the corridor, wanting to kill them at some point. <laughs> if you really have a wonderful, passionate, generous heart, you give generosity to everything, in- including to your post. we pos- within in French. It's like your kind of, uh, uh, I don't know how you would say that in English, but anyway, that kind of neurotic kind of... Uh, I don't know how you say that in English, pulsion. It's like a, you want to kill somebody it's a pulsion. You know, it's like somebody that, something that just come and you feel frightened of your anger, you know, because it's just kind of, want to, you know, it's like an energy force in you that just kind of act on something, maybe without thinking. That's a pulsion. Yeah? So, here you are, became, you know, became a Samana, you know, to liberate the heart for the benefit of all beings till the last blade of grass is liberated. And then you spend weeks and weeks on end sort of being obsessed about that, a worried mind about something really silly that had died about 20 years ago anyway. And you keep remembering it again and again and again, how your mum take you to the potty in the wrong way, how your dad did something really silly with you and you know, make you want to be the person you didn't want to be. Do you know, when you know the Dharma and you practice, you know, you just realize we're all humans, including mum and dad. And you stop being angry with these things, because, you know, you'll be spending if you really want to be angry with human beings, I mean, you can really, you have a whole material there to drive the whole planet nuts, you know. You could just carry on your fire of angers for years on end, if you really want to make everybody straight, including yourself. So you give up in the end, because it's not worth it. That's not the means that's going to solve anything. But for a long time you think anger does some things, you know. So check out how you relate to your life energy. Don't be mean to it. Don't be don't criticize yourself all the time by the way you are then you'll stop criticizing others by the way they are. So your life is it's like a win-win situation, you know. When you stop criticizing yourself, then what happens? So we make the mind very busy, mostly because we cannot listen to what's going on in there. So, churn up all stories, stories, and she did this and he did that, blah, 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 blah. So we don't hear inside, I'm so miserable, I'm so awfully miserable, So instead of listening to that and not knowing one is frightened to even think like that, consciously, "I'm utterly depressed and miserable that Tamaraawati. Nobody is good enough for me, really. There's no one that's kind of I'm not talking about myself, by the way just cutting. Yeah, in case you feel anybody feel like this. Right? nothing really worth it now. You go through this period like this, you know, when you look around, the perceptions are really deceptive. It's amazing how deceptive, I became much more conscious of perception. They have a life, objective, objectifying perception. It's quite interesting. We can objectify thoughts, it's not too difficult. But perception, it's much more, it's not even nebulous like feelings. It's just like a veil, it's like kind of, you know, it's like painting something on your (laughs) chitta. Sometimes you you paint a kind of Pollock type and you get really confused. (laughs) You know Pollock? Anybody seen painting of Pollock? No? No? Young generation. Yeah. So you want a nice kind of countryside, greens and things like that. You want to perceive life through the through the veil of beautiful sunshine and green trees and lovely, lovely, loving people and so on and then you get disappointed and that's a perception it's not necessarily a thought it's not necessarily a desire it's just like a painting in your mind and sometimes it can become grey so you get a grey weather you can really paint easily a grey, miserable sky and everybody looks grey as well if you pay attention to it, you'll see. You can, you can cover your mind with a lovely dark grey, light grey, with a bit of sunshine occasionally. Your best friend becomes the sunshine, you know, like, oh, if I say hello. Now the mirror, miserable sod coming again. So be careful, we never look at that, do we? We're obsessed with how Buddhism should be. We're obsessed about how, whether I'm doing the ten paramitas or not, or whether I'm doing the, you know, I'm generous enough, which is one level of the practice, I'm not denying this level, by the way. It's very important to reflect on these things and use them for guidance. But, you know, if you really want to nurture your mind and heart, The deepest level of nurturing the mind is to be at peace with emptiness, with an empty mind. That's a deep level because anything can come in then, but they are also seen in a different way when you have made peace with an empty mind. Empty mind means don't make it too difficult for you. An empty mind, non-attached mind. Okay, not forever, but just to have moment where you're not attached to anything, and you enjoy that experience but we constantly kind of grabbing one thing grabbing another grabbing this and that we're on a grab kind of journey grabbing life is a good grabbing experience from day one to the last day you just keep grabbing at things Internally, externally, even internally. Nobody knows what one is grabbing, what somebody else is grabbing inside themselves. You might be just grabbing a perception about never feeling good enough. Just grab that. Then you're caught up. Then you're grabbing the perception, maybe jhana will never be your thing because never been able to do jhana and whatever Jantani Saru said about jhana, I'll never get there. And then you go on to the other side, jhana anyway, it's a waste of time. I'm just into vipassana, really. That's a real thing. And the Buddha says, you know, until you get out of jhana. So that's kind of backup for your belief system. I don't need jhana, really, because you need to get out of it to get into the vipassana. So what's the point of getting jhana anyway? But one, one or the other, neither of them are, are right or wrong. Go back into the emptiness of your mind, find that for yourself, whether what it is about, whether you do jhana, or whether you do vipassana. Achyam Sumedho you know, had a very lovely way of ex- really expressing the teaching because he came from his own experience and basically... When you experience the mind, you know, you know very well that if you don't have a level of concentration, which is not necessarily jhana, but a level of concentration, which means a level of energy, it's a level of stability. It's a level of um, you know, a power in the mind to stay still while the, while the M20D or the M25 is going on. And it's not just thinking, it's the whole, the whole experience of the candles, you know, which is, can be very active. You can get bored, you can get in a state of pain physically, you can get into all kinds of things, you know, really agitation, restlessness. So we can easily, you see, if we have, Buddha talks about bhava-tanha, tanha but the mind itself, the past itself, is about experiencing bhava and vibhava, which is a natural flow of the habits of the mind. The mind is always taking a position for or against something, I like it and I don't like it, it's good, it's bad, it's, I want this, I don't want that. So you're learning basically to travel to your mind and get to know it. And that's when you do this with the torch of mindfulness, with the power of mindfulness, then what happens? It's a great, amazing thing. What happens is that it stops the fuel, that perpetuate habits. Do you understand? It's stopping the engine of habits by not fueling it. Mindfulness is like this fuel stopper. So people would not be spending years and years and years observing their mind or looking at the mind. For what? People say, well, why? You know, I mean, I've got to do some work, I've got to do this, I've got to help the world, I've got to, you know, to do this, this, and that, and this. Not many people understand what monks and nuns are doing, actually. We are observing the mind, not to just enjoy the observation of the mind. We're observing the mind because this observation, this quality of consciousness and observation is enabling the fuel of delusion to continue. Not a small thing. And the attachment, it's not so difficult to know them, to know attachment. The attachment, in my experience, is like I don't know, and I attach until somebody pulls, pulls whatever I am attached from me. Then I start going, I pull the clothes out, you know, it's like... stop. Oh! get really upset. Or I get, it hurts, you know, something is attached. It's like pulling an elastic band, you know, from your skin. I mean, it's not a good image, but you understand what I'm saying. It's pulling something painful. It's painful. Life will bring this teaching to you. Don't expect the books. Books can help you to remember that life experiences are the best teachers. But we often, we're so busy thinking about how we should do things, how we should feel, what's wrong, how to improve, that by the time life has given you a golden teaching, you've missed it. You know, you're in the kitchen, for example. I mean, I haven't been in the kitchen for a long, 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 long time. But somebody is telling you off about something. And you have immediately a teaching. What do I do with being told off? But instead of listening to that teaching, you know, that experience, being told off, most of us will just react which is the normal habit we have this habit it's just there it's not that bad nor good nor great nor terrible just a habit of reacting compulsion so we watch that we observe that we observe very very with great in great details we observe the way the mind works we observe and to do this if you didn't have a center that is stable and confident in its stability then you will you keep on treading the mill of the activity you know and you don't see the teachings of life you don't see the teachings because you're too busy with me me Buddhism teachers when I go to Thailand this that So many things. We keep being busy, busy, busy. That's why we know the meditation practice is there to stop this busyness for a while. Because why? Because the mindfulness is like cutting the fuel of your habits. So it doesn't mean the the thoughts are going to stop, you know. But some people sometimes say, how do you stop thinking? So I'll tell you a little story how I stopped thinking once. Because, of course, a Samedo is always telling you, let it go, don't try to stop anything. So one day I was uh, cooking on a retreat on a cha- of a Samedo up in a little, this was a retreat house somewhere in Wiltshire. Wiltshire. And, uh, you know, I was cooking every morning with a gentleman, who I did not know, but he was obviously interested in meditation. And uh, I had great time because I could cook what I wanted, lots of things I could cook, and I was a good cook. You know, you start loving food in the cot in France, you know. You don't cook straight away, but that comes, you love food. So, um, all afternoon, for the first three days of the ten day Retreat, I was continuing obsessing myself with the pizza, and the quiche, and the cakes, and the purse, and this and that and the others, you know, non-stop. And I was watching this, getting so annoyed. God, you know, so irritated. And I couldn't control it. It kept going on and on. Thinking, thinking about, again, a second pizza, a better one, of course, you know, about what on uh, activating my cheetah, a better pizza, a different one with olives, Anchovies and all that, or the quiche, I'll have to make the eggs a bit better next time and whip them a bit more, maybe. You know, like improvement, the whole talks, talk, the whole talks was about making things a bit better, improving. We're very good at that. I think human beings have really great talent in trying to improve the planet, so much so that it's going to die soon, you know. So we, you know, we are great. We keep improving, improving, thinking we're doing the right thing until the whole world is panicking at the thought that we're going to explode one day and just be dead all of us. But anyway, so I was there on my cushion with a not too far away and I can't. so the third day I remember I was just about bawling on my cushion and trust life, you know, because life suddenly I had this little voice in my mind just popped popped through. And uh, my mind just said, almost out of control, he said, I talked to my mind and I said, You know, you can think for 3,000 years, I'll still be there for you. That's what I said. And you know what? All my thought stops instantly. It's called love, the power of love, I think. <laughs> Call it whatever you want. What was happening? You understand how we we are really in the in the world of delusion because there's many things that we don't know. There are many things we don't know how it works. What was happening? I have no idea, but it worked. It never happened again. I didn't have any thought about it. I let go. Why did I let go? Because being a greedy type, I gave a massive dose of acceptance. Not just, you know, accept you is fine, you know. I said, for 3,000 years, I didn't even know what I was saying, you know. It's like, for 3,000 years, I'll still be there for you. And I don't know much psychology. Was I'll be there for you, my dear friend, you know. Holding your, your hand on their shoulders or giving a big hug, you know. Don't worry, I'll be there for you if you need me. It just came out, you know, out of nowhere. Stop, all sorts for the rest of the retreat. I mean, not that sort stopped completely, but the normal traffic went back to its more normal state, rather than being obsessive. Make the difference between obsessing thinking and just the normal thinking. But it comes because the mind is, you know, is used to thinking. It's not like it's something abnormal for the mind to think. It's got a story. Remember, the mind is a lending platform where it receives the story of our ears, the story of our eyes, the story of our gustative kind of sense, the story of our smell sense, the story of our body contact, the story of the six senses. And there's plenty of stories going on in our mind, and sometimes they get mixed up. So this busy mind, just have compassion for it. Don't mistreat it, trying to shut it down and turn it into a kind of marble Buddha. So, I probably should stop by now. I hope it was helpful, just to see how these forces of desire for something, we're quite used to it, we know what it is, it's familiar, it's more familiar. But just to live with, you know, like we often talk about desire, and now because Pali is more known, Buddhism is more known, now we can get access to words world like Chanda. People have access to a world like Chanda, which means also desire, but usually it's linked together with the skillful practice. Not the desire to go and steal somebody or the desire to go and, you know, murder someone. It's usually the chanda is always associated with the practice itself, you know. It's a kind of zest, energy, desire, love for something, passion, sometimes even translated as passion. But the Bhavatanha and Vibhavatanha, we don't always realize that. What kind of energy is that? And there's, you know, in a monastic life, we are very restrained through our precepts, through our vinaya, through so many things. The, the, the energy force is quite challenged, you know, because we, we can't have, uh, you know, can't have sex, basically, we can't have children or anything like that, or we can't, you know, we are very strict with our speech, we are very strict with our food was quite strict, with uh, sleeping and so on. So that makes the mind quite tense, intensifies things. And it intensifies bhavatana, vibhavatana. I've never been so passionate in the life than in this life. Even though I had a life before I was in the dance world, you know, I had a, an interesting kind of uh, world around me but nothing as this boring life, you know, like monastic life. I used to find it so boring at some level. But I could watch the boredom. I just enjoyed that life gave me the state of boredom to be really contemplated because that was one of the five hindrances that if you don't get through those, you're in trouble. you want to have the ABC, the foundation work, that's the five hindrances, to know them by really deep, 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 deep. Otherwise, they'll be, they'll be really uh, fooling you again and again. We're not going to go into the five hindrances, but that's sense pleasure, desire for sense, that's anger, restlessness and, restlessness and worry, uh, sloth and torpor, and doubts. If you don't see those five states of mind, if you don't learn how to see those five states of mind as object of the mind, you'll be in trouble, because you believe them again and again and again. That's why you're in trouble. And they're not particularly nice. Restlessness, you know how difficult it is to bear with restlessness. sloth into torpor, we better not talk about this, it's more, even more difficult. Right? Then, what, uh, doubts, oh my god, that's so painful, isn't it? Doubts, not knowing what to do, where to go, how to be, remembering who you are, doubts. Oh, that's all these five states of mind, extremely unpleasant. And there are only, only, um, uh, you know, states of mind, they're nothing more than that. But it takes a while to see them as states of mind, objectify as not me, not mine, not what I am. But they are there, so how do you deal with them? That's a practice, do you understand? To see them, to know them, and to stop fearing them completely. So just to finish, this bhavua and vibhavua is the mind moving constantly. It's actually truly anatta, which means it will happen no matter what you want to do with it, unless you want to control and repress everything. Those two tendencies keep going for a long, long time. Don't worry about it, it's the nature of the mind. Okay, so nature of the mind—it's the mind in its natural state. Goes I like, I don't like, I want, I don't want this. It will even if there's nothing you want, it will just do that. So you begin to see it more as nature rather than a problem. You see more as, you know, organic mind rather than a, a problem. But to do that, you have to have a stability in the mind, an interest in the mind, an energy, a power, you know, a, con- a concentrator, enough concentration to pay attention to these things. And then life is a real, this life becomes really rich, very rich, very interesting, Because you don't do this just because of, how can I say, for a goal particularly. You do this because you have understood this path is actually freeing your heart, broadening your world, broadening your life, making all the beautiful qualities of the human being more generous all in all aspects. Increasing those qualities, we talk about the parameter, your generosity, your kindness, your uh, you know, your virtue, your, all that kind of things, all that kind of mind state, become more developed, become more um, a natural self. It's natural. You don't have to work at it in the way you think you should work at it. It's just a natural mind. It takes a while to get a sense of that. So, I think I'll end on this. Mm-hmm.